Welcome to another In the Telling Scrap episode, segments that are too good to be left on the cutting room floor. How did you how did you come to a place of getting this diagnosis? Actually, I was I was dating a guy at the time who is um, now my roommate and um, and that's another thing that there's a lot of things that you'll hear me hint about on my podcast, but I don't explain them. So I'm just going to like give you all these Easter eggs and if people <laughs> want to go find them, they can seriously, because it's like, if they, if people care enough to, then they can. But, um, part of my anxiety, like my trauma, my PTSD makes it so like, I can't sleep alone at night. I mean, I'm not referring to someone has to be in the bed with me. <laughs> right. But just, you don't want to be the only one. In I the can't house. be the only one in the house. And I have three giant dogs, you know. And so people are like, well, aren't the dogs enough? I'm like, nope, nope. It has to be another person. And the thing about it is, people are like, well, have you tried and have you tried? And I understand people are trying to be helpful. They really are. And I appreciate it. But at the end of the day, it's like, no, trust me. I have tried all of these things. And truly, my brain does this thing where if I'm the only one in my house, my brain refuses to shut off. Because I think it's a sort of lizard brain primordial yeah, primal protective thing. Yeah, yeah. It says we have to keep watch just in case the boogeyman comes, right? But if there's another person in the house, my brain will relinquish that power. It will say, that's okay. You can you can sleep now. Yeah, someone else is taking watch. Someone else is watching. So it's fine. Even if they're asleep, it doesn't matter. It's enough for my brain to go, it's okay. So I have a male roommate, which is quite strange i think for um our utah culture this is where we live especially for our mormon culture you know to be living with someone especially someone who you dated like it's even weirder you're living with your ex but you guys aren't like together it's like yeah no so my friend who i live with years ago when we first met was the one that suggested to me that i might be on the spectrum and at first i got really mad as the story goes we were sitting in his truck and he said Brittany there's this book that I would like for you to read and I and I said oh a book you say I love books what kind of book he said well it's a book about women (laughs) I was like well that's vague (laughs) could you be a little bit more specific he goes and this is where his tone gets a lot more measured and sort of labored and he's like book about women who are on the spectrum (laughs) and there's a pause pregnant pause pregnant pause and I say do you think I'm autistic to which he responds I just think it's a really interesting book and I think you should read it (laughs) (laughs) to which I respond you think I'm autistic And I think there were some expletives in there, so I'll spare your ears, but I'm like, I am not, insert your favorite expletive, autistic. And then I read the book and I was like, huh, maybe I'm autistic. (laughs) It's about how it went. It's about how it went. I read the book and I was like, I might be autistic. And then I let it go for a few years because I didn't want to have to face that reality. And I didn't want to think that all the uniqueness that goes into making me the special snowflake that I am could possibly be explained by a simple diagnosis of autism. No, I'm quirky because I'm quirky, dang it. 
Like, I'm this because I'm this, because I'm uniquely Britney and no one else is like me because we're all like that. We all want to think that we're so ridiculously individualistic that no one could possibly be like us, you know? Our thoughts, our ideas, our motivations, so unique. No one's ever felt the way we felt before or thought what we've thought before, right? We are just narcissistic little creatures <laughs> is what we are. So then a few years later, um, I don't know why it became relevant to me again, but I went to the Utah, University of Utah Autism Spectrum Disorder Clinic. I had a consultation with a lady. She's amazing, and she works primarily with women, older women on the spectrum. Because I don't know if you're aware of this or if anyone who's listening to this is aware, but there is a whole new sort of body of evidence coming out into the world that there is a large population of women who have gone either undiagnosed or misdiagnosed. Because the way that high-functioning, or what we used to consider, I suppose, high-functioning autism manifests in women is different from how it manifests in men. And we've been basing our diagnostic criteria off of adolescent boys. And this is true, like because when I finally went in and got evaluated, the tests that they were putting me through seemed like they were made for children. <laughs> Like, they literally will put things, like, little objects in front of you. Like, be it a thumbtack, like, a feather, a piece of string. And they'll be like, now tell me a story about these objects. And I'm like, what? <laughs> um, I think mine was like, mine was like, uh, MacGyver needed to build a bomb. And so he used this paper clip, this string, and this thing. And, you know, of course, they're just like, mm, fascinating. As they write, you're just like, like, what is fascinating about this? This is the worst improv game I've ever played. Right? <laughs> it's truly what it was. So a lot of it, you can tell, is geared towards kids. I think you're going to start to see that change. It may not happen for another, I don't know, 10 years or more because it's more, it's more of like an underground thing right now. Not really underground, but it's not, um, what's the word? It's not like... It's not in the DSM. It's not clinically proven. How about that? It's more anecdotal. But some of the biggest names in, in the autism world are, are on board with this. Yeah, they're in the, the research is beginning. Correct. So I don't know because I am not an expert at all. But I do think that as time goes on, I think the diagnosis, the label of autism, I don't think that's what we're going to be using 10 years from now to describe people like me, I don't think it will be autism. I think it will be something different. This is too broad a term to come up with it all is. of these things. It absolutely is. You've got someone, so on one end of the spectrum, you've got one, I don't say that in a derogatory sense, I just say that in a spectrum is so vague sometimes. Right, like what is that? Is that There's a like continuum? What, right. Like what's, what's zero, what's ten? Right, exactly. And, and the way I've heard it explained, it's not even like a zero and ten thing. It's like uh, like you you get like a color sort of wheel thing. Like imagine imagine a wall and you've got just like swirls of color everywhere. And so you're going to, any given autistic person is going to be this point on the blue and this point on the red and that point on the yellow and this point in the orange. But my orange isn't as orange as your orange is, but my red is definitely redder than your red is kind of thing. So it's not even as simplistic as saying like one to ten. We've got colors. <laughs> so... Um, but anyway, so you've got someone on the, say, low-functioning end of autism who is nonverbal, who cannot feed themselves, who cannot walk, like, and that's autism. But then you've got people, like Jerry Seinfeld was saying that he thinks that he might be autistic. How do you reconcile those two? 
Like nobody knows. And it's not doing the public any favors because they don't know what it means. If something becomes so broad as to include everyone in it, you're like, well then what, this, that's when you get people going, well, aren't we all just a little bit autistic? Right, which is not helpful. No, it's not helpful. And you go, actually, no, we're not. It's not, it's like being a little pregnant. Like you can't, you, you are or you're not. But, and there are varying degrees of pregnancy. Like you could be four months along and eight months along. But no, either you are autistic or you're not autistic. At least how we classify it now. Either you meet the criteria or you don't. And if you don't meet the criteria, you're not autistic. You can say that you have autistic trappings or characteristics. I think that there are people who are autistish, which I will often say of myself. I'm like, actually, I coined a new phrase just the other day because depending on who you ask, I had a therapist once say, I think that a lot of your quote unquote autistic trappings are actually just a byproduct of your trauma. And I'm like, great. <laughs> so, so traumatism has become, <laughs> I'm gonna write a book. I'm going to call it traumatism. But you see what I'm you, you can see how this becomes problematic. Yeah. Because it's not like a cancer diagnosis. It's not like breaking your foot. It's more nebulous than that. People want to put you in boxes. And it's not malicious. Here's the thing. I say that and people go, there I get And it's like, it's not malicious. It is the way the human brain works. Yeah, we have to categorize. I eat that, I die. I eat that, I feel good. Yes. Right? That is a lion. That is a bush. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Run from that, pee over there. Yes. <laughs> it's exactly what it is. And so this is the thing. It's like, this is why I struggle having conversations sometimes with people. Because I will say things like, people like to categorize. And they will like throw their arms up like it's a revivalist church. And they're just, they're like, they're like, how dare you? And they've got the vapors or whatever. But... It's like you have to understand that there's nothing wrong with saying this is how the human brain works. And who knows, 10, 20 years from now, the literature might change and I might have to eat my words and go, oh, that's actually not how the human brain works. But all the neurologists were also wrong. Yes, but everybody else was wrong too. It's fine to be wrong about things. But yeah, so people like to put you in boxes and if you don't fit into a box, it breaks their brain. It truly breaks their brain. And you look at it and the smoke starts coming out of their ear because it's an incongruity and people don't know what to do with incongruities. It causes this cognitive dissonance in them when they're just like, how can you be both conservative in your practices but then put a piece of art out that is so plainly not conservative? You know, or heaven forbid you wear something that's a bit low cut but you're saying that you're very sexually conservative, that doesn't make sense. And I understand we're all constantly kind of projecting ideas, symbols. We're all like putting symbols out into the world that have meaning attached to them or whatever. But at the end of the day, I've just learned, yeah, people can't, people can't handle incongruity. It's not, it's, <laughs> it's not good. It's not good. Which is why you see people tend to uh, move towards more polarized sort of individuals. It's like people who are clearly this or clearly that because they can wrap their heads around it. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, it's just human behavior. So, so there's that. I want you to talk about when you mentioned, when you posted about a being diagnosed, uh -huh. you talked about stealth adaptation. And I feel like we are <laughs> dancing up to that concept. If, 
Yeah. 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 Talk to me what you meant by that. Well, I'd like, I don't know if I coined that, so I'm not going to take credit for it because the idea, the reason why they think that so many women have been able to fly under the radar, diagnostically speaking, or have been misdiagnosed over the years instead of getting an autism diagnosis is because women learn camouflaging is what they call it. I call it stealth adaptation where you basically there's there's because there's different ways we can learn things right some things we learned so early as as children that we can't pinpoint where we learned it right and and some things happen so early that you wouldn't even be able to if you wanted to remember because as children we've got you know we've got like mirror neurons going on in our in our brains that we look at an adult smiling and so we smile back you know, or we hear an adult laugh, so we laugh back. And we hear an adult say, mama, so we say, mama. Like, it's just the way the human brain works. So we learn things, in my view, and this is not science, we learn things intuitively or we learn things observationally. And I know people would be like, well, what's the difference? I don't know that I can really explain the difference very, very well, other than the words themselves should explain it. Sure. One thing you learn without having to give it much thought. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like you're in a bathtub and it just washes over you and you're just like, that's great. You learn through osmosis. It's like a sunburn. You didn't really have to think about it, right? The sun just did it. Versus versus like learning something conscientious, conscientiously or learning something on purpose involves more thought process. So when I talk about stealth adaptation, I... I'm referring to stuff like when I was a kid, I didn't, I had a hard time getting along with other kids. Not that I was a bully, actually more that I got bullied. It was because I didn't, I didn't understand. Like I didn't understand the way that kids played with each other. It, it all seemed like they had a code book or they had all been gifted some (laughs) set of instructions that I had not been gifted. And so everyone else was playing this game you know, like a chess game. And I'm sitting there going, I don't understand how knights move. I do- Is this a pawn? <laughs> I'm going to move this pawn. Is that correct? And then you do. So you learn by trial and error. Now, to an extent, everyone does this. To an extent, we all do this. You, you do certain things and you get certain results and you decide whether or not you like those results. And if you like it, then you keep doing it. And if you don't like it, then you stop doing it. So that's what makes it really hard, I think, to try to explain. So in the autistic world, they like to say neurotypical versus uh, people who aren't autistic, they'll call neurotypical. And, and so it's so, <laughs> and sometimes they use it in a playful way and sometimes they, they do it to be kind of cheeky. But they'll be like, this is why it's impossible to try to explain anything to neurotypical people because it's just, how do I explain to you how my brain works? You know? Especially when it's different than yeah. mine. And and it's how it's always been. Yeah. I, I can't compare it to anything else. Yeah. I have nothing. So I don't know how your brain works. And because I think a lot of the things I say, people go, well, I've felt like that before. Or if I say, for example, I'm like, well, I really, I can get really overwhelmed with sounds and smells and stuff like that. And people go, oh, I get that way sometimes. And it's like, yes, because again... Harkening back to the serial killer thing, we're all working within a very small range of human emotion and experience. I'm not experiencing anything you haven't experienced. 
I don't think autistic people are experiencing anything that a neurotypical person hasn't experienced in their life. Now, there may be certain sensations, like for example, my friend's uh, nephew is on the spectrum and he hates getting his hair cut because it's painful. It's literally painful to have his hairs cut. He feels every single, like, and I don't know how because I've never experienced to that degree, right? But I know what pain feels like and I know what annoyance feels like. And so that's all, that, that would be the best way for me to try to explain that to anybody is just like, I'm not feeling anything different than you're feeling. I might just be feeling it more frequently and more intensely. Emphasis on the more intensely. Yeah. Well, that's like the vast majority of the DSM anyway, right? Is like right. frequency and intensity. Exactly. Everyone can have felt that, but have you felt that regularly for the past month for, you know, this many times a week? Right. And to the point where it, it inhibits your life yeah. to some degree. Yeah. Well, you're changing the way you would yeah. go through life because of it. Yeah. And yeah. you, and like, to what extent do you maybe need some sort of accommodation mm-hmm. for that? But that's why proper diagnosis is important And I think this is why you're going to see the field of autism start to change because you need more specific sort of diagnosis enable so that you can give people the resources and the specific help that they need. Because truly there are autistic people out there who you will never know. You'll never know they are autistic. They may never know that they're autistic and it doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter to them. It doesn't matter to anybody else. And they will go through their whole life being just who they are and some people might say yeah so and so they're a little quirky huh or yeah so and so they're artistic not autistic artistic you know or they'll be like oh yeah that person she dances to the beat of her own drum like these are all these cute little euphemisms is that the right word yeah. that we often that people will often use for autistic people who they don't know are autistic and i know prior to my diagnosis quirky came up quite a bit for me when people would describe Brittany. Oh, she's quirky, quirky Brittany. But because I'm an actor and because I'm an artist, people go, oh, but that's just because she's an artist and all artists are weird. Yeah, it's cute, it's personality, it's fun, she does it on purpose. Yeah, that is the thing that I definitely take humbridge with. (laughs) (laughs) Talk to me about she does it on purpose. (laughs) No, 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 no. I've met people who are um, very, um, what's the word, like, exhibitionist and there's a there's I I shouldn't say this because because I'm not a psychiatrist and I don't want to get this wrong but it reminds me of this diagnosis called like a histrionic personality disorder but it tends to be people who are just like larger than life and you think to yourself that can't be real and it's not you know it's it's like a persona that they put on but, but if you were to kind of like, if you were able to kind of like get them in a quiet place and get them to trust you, they would drop it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Maybe. Or if you wear it all the time, maybe you can't really take it off as easily. You know? Right. And I will say there's, there's certain aspects, again, for all of us where we become sort of chameleon-like depending on who we're around. I don't think that that's strange. Yeah. I think as actors, sometimes it can be even worse. Yeah, probably. <laughs> because there's this one-upmanship about us when we get around each other. We want to be the most talented, the most charming, the most sexy, the most whatever in any given room. I, w- I dare say that most actors behave differently when they're in a group of other actors. A little bit more bombastic 
than when they go home and they're just hanging out with their spouses. You know, I think most of us have an on off switch where we kind of go and now I'm on and now I'm off. You know, <laughs> like I'm on stage and now I'm in my pajamas. And I must need to be on stage in this moment because I'm surrounded by the stage.